Well, brothers and sisters, as we begin this morning, I would invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. We're going to continue our exposition of the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to eventually look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. But as we begin this morning, just turn your Bible to Luke chapter 12, and we're going to look starting there around verse 49. And as you turn there, the, the preaching of Jesus, I want you to think about the preaching of our Lord, because the preaching of Jesus Christ is some of the hardest preaching in all of Scripture. It's often been said that Jesus preached on hell more than anyone who came before or after Him. Jesus preached on judgment more than He preached on the love of God. Although I would add that we should not separate those two things. To preach on judgment is a very loving thing to do. Jesus warned His hearers of the danger of hell. And in one such sermon in Luke chapter 12, He told His hearers to be ready because He would come at an hour that they would not expect. And then He said in verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. In verse 54, he goes on and he says to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? In other words, Jesus is saying to the crowd, you can tell when the weather will be bad. How come you can't tell that judgment is coming? And then he says in verse 57, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Jesus is the accuser. He's saying he is the the magistrate. He is the judge. And he is saying, make an effort to settle while there's still time. The judgment, of course, is for sin. Sin is disobedience to God's holy law, whether that disobedience is in thought, in word, or in action. And the penalty for sin against an infinite God is infinite itself. And that's why Jesus says you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. In the midst of this message on judgment, then Jesus is interrupted. Look at chapter 13 and verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do not think Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish." Jesus was talking about judgment and they, they say, here's some judgment, Jesus. Here's some terrible things that happened in our world. And the people are thinking that those sinners were killed in, in some form of judgment of God. They were sinning in some way, therefore God killed them. Jesus says, no, I tell you, 
They were not worse sinners than all other sinners. And then he turns it to them and he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Without repentance, we will all be judged. And Jesus used the difficult circumstances of His day to point people to the fact that they were sinners and that they would perish unless they repented. The doctrine of repentance is so important because without repentance, there there is no deliverance. Without repentance, hell is guaranteed. Repentance is the way that we settle with our accuser on the way to the judge. And as we'll see this morning, there's a type of repentance that is no repentance at all. There are many who name the name of Jesus, but who have never truly repented at all. And if genuine repentance is the way that we flee the wrath to come, then we need to know what it looks like and whether we have the real thing. This topic is really so fitting to our situation with COVID-19 right now. Everyone is worried about their physical health, and physical health is important, but how much more important is our eternal souls? Both Jesus and John the Baptist recognize this to the extent that their preaching ministry could be summarized in one word, repent. Like I said, we're just continuing our series through Matthew, but the next two Sundays here, we're going to slow down and we're going to examine what both John and Jesus preached. And so if you're with me this morning, if you haven't done so already, then turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. And we're going to really just focus this morning on one word in verse 2. But let's begin reading, starting at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judah. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Flip over just quickly to Matthew 4 and verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so here's the message of the greatest man born of a woman. That's how John spoke about John, that's how Jesus spoke about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11. This was also the message of Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we do well to understand this message. This week we're going to focus on the doctrine of repentance, and next week we'll look at what it meant that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. But for today, for this morning's message, what you should know about the kingdom of heaven being at hand is that it is closely linked to the gospel. In fact, Mark summarizes the same message, the same time period in Mark 1.14. Listen to this. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And what we want to do today is take a thorough look at the doctrine of repentance. And so if you're taking notes this morning, we've got, we're going to see five aspects of the doctrine of repentance. Five aspects of the doctrine of repentance. And the first one is, is that repentance is a summary of the gospel. Repentance is a summary of the gospel. The gospel message can be summarized in that one word, really that one command, repent. One of my favorite gospel verses is Acts 17 and verse 30. 
The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. God commands all people everywhere to repent. And often throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament as well, the call of the Gospel is encapsulated in that one little word, repent. Now this actually might surprise us a little bit because I wonder if this word repent would summarize our preaching of the Gospel. As Protestants, as non-Catholics, we believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so we might more frequently emphasize faith as the proper response to the gospel. After all, justification is always through faith or by faith. To be justified means to be declared righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness and that God then treats us as though we are righteous. And again, that justification is through faith or by faith. So why does John the Baptist and Jesus and even Paul, at least in in these texts that we looked at, why do they emphasize repentance? What is the relationship between repentance and faith? Hold on to that question about the relationship between repentance and faith. We'll come back to that later on. But first, let me ask even a more foundational question. What is repentance? What is repentance? In Hebrew, the word most frequently translated repent is the the Hebrew word shuv, and it simply means to turn, to turn around, or to go back. And from this comes the theological meaning to turn away from an activity, to cease doing something. 1 Kings 8.35 talks about this turning from sin. Job 36.10 says turning from iniquity. Isaiah 59.20 says turn from transgression. Ezekiel 3.19, turn from wickedness. And Nehemiah 35, 9.35 says, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. And such a turning from sin, iniquity, transgression, wickedness, and wicked works implies a turning to something else. In Hosea 14 and verse 1, this word return or turn is used. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. And so they are called to turn back to the Lord. Malachi 3 and verse 7, God says to Israel, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. And then he says, return or turn to me and I will turn or return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 30 talks about a day when Israel will turn to God. And so Deuteronomy 4.30 says, when you are in distress and all these things have come upon you. And really what's happening in the context there is Deuteronomy, Moses is predicting in Deuteronomy about the exile, that Israel will be exiled. And so he says, when you are in distress and all these things, when this exile has come upon you in the latter days, you will return. There's our word. You will turn to the Lord your God and listen to His voice. Again in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 1, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, 
And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Moses again talks about a return to the Lord, a turn to the Lord with all of one's heart and with all of one's soul. Now there's another word that in Hebrew that is often translated repent, and it means to be sorry, to regret something. It has the sense of grief and sorrow built into it. And the word is usually used of God's grief over the results of sin. His regret and sorrow because of man's sin, but it's sometimes used of men. The the word is used at the end of the book of Job. Job speaks this word on his lips. He says in Job 42 and verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job's response in the presence of God reminds us again of Isaiah's response of his vision of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. The holiness of God overwhelmed Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." When Job and Isaiah came face to face with the holy God, they saw their own sin in a new light. Job said, I despise myself. Isaiah said, woe is me. Peter came to the similar conclusion in the presence of Jesus Christ. When Simon Peter saw it, this is Luke 5.8, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In the New Testament, the word for repentance is metanoia or metanoiao, the verb. And the word is formed with two Greek words. Meta means with or sometimes it means against. But when, when it's joined with another word, it means to change. And noose is the mind. And so there's metanous, the, this idea of a, a change of mind. But this change of mind in repentance, in the Greek word repentance, is is never merely a change of mind, simply in the sense of thinking differently about something. Thinking differently in this sense of repenting always comes along with different actions. The the results of this change of mind is new actions, a, a new direction. Just like we saw in the Old Testament, to turn and do 180 degrees. That's why when John in Matthew chapter 3 calls people to repent, he demanded to see that that repentance bear fruit. And so again, Matthew chapter 3, we're just reading a little bit further down in the context. John's message again was repent and the people came to him in the wilderness confessing their sins. 
And verse 5, Matthew 3, when then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Verse 7, when he saw, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so true repentance is a change of mind that results in good fruit. There's a fleeing from sin and a return to God and to righteousness and to holy living. <clears throat> now for us, the, the fact that there is a call to repentance is actually good news indeed. This is very good news. You see, God is not coming, uh, commanding all people everywhere to repent to no purpose. The message is not repent, but it will do you no good. Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7 says this, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let Him return to the Lord. Let Him repent. Let Him turn. And here's why. That He, that is that God, may have compassion on Him and turn to our God for He will abundantly pardon and so there's good news for us built into this call to repent. And so we begin to see the gospel in all this. Turn as well with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 verses 46 and 47. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, thus it was, it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And so here's the Gospel. Christ suffered and died. He rose from the dead. He died to pay the penalty for the sins of everyone who believes in Him. And the fact that He rose from the dead proves that God accepted His offering. And now God is sending His people to proclaim the gospel news, this good news. And what do we proclaim? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If you have a, an older ESV, it probably says repentance and the forgiveness of sins, but the oldest manuscripts have for, and literally it's, it's unto, it's, it's repentance unto the forgiveness of sins. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has done everything. He has done everything necessary to save sinners. He has paid the penalty for sin. He has earned a perfect righteousness for His people. He has, uh, there, there's nothing left to do except respond to this Gospel. Salvation is accomplished. Atonement was made. But in order to receive the benefits of what Christ did, sinners must respond to this message. No response, no salvation. No repentance, no forgiveness. And so the whole gospel can be summarized by this one word, by the appropriate response to it, and that is repentance. 
Now, in order for us to, to dig deeper into the true nature of repentance, let's move into the second and third aspects of the doctrine of repentance. We've seen that repentance is a summary of the gospel. Next note that repentance is a spiritual vision. It's a, a spiritual vision of sin on the one hand, and it's a spiritual vision of God on the other. And so number two, repentance is a spiritual vision of sin. This aspect and the, the next one as well really flow from the, the, the logical understanding of the, the definition of repentance. If to repent means to turn from sin, iniquity, transgression, and wickedness, which it does, then in order to do that, in order to turn in that way, there must first be a recognition of sin, iniquity, and transgression in our lives. You can't turn from what you don't recognize. And in Luke chapter 15, and go ahead and turn there if you would, there's three parables in Luke 15 that illustrate God's joy when one sinner comes to repentance. These are parable triplets here, each parable teaching the same idea that God is a, a joyful God, that God rejoices when a sinner repents. In verse 2 of, of, the, of Luke 15, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They're talking about Jesus Christ that he would receive sinners and welcome them. And so he replies in verse 3 and he tells them this parable. And these parables contrast how God views sinners with how the Pharisees were viewing it. God views sinners who repent with joy. The Pharisees view sinners who are repenting and coming to Christ with grumbling. And the first parable there is the parable of the lost sheep. If a shepherd lost a sheep, and it would be a huge loss to a shepherd in those days, if a shepherd of a hundred sheep lost one of them, he would surely go after it until he found it. And when he found it, verse 5 when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. It was a similar case if a woman lost one of ten silver coins, she would search for it. Verse 9, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God rejoices when one sinner repents. God is the one who rejoices before the angels of God. And what I really want you to hear, to see here though, is that the, the next parable the parable of the two lost sons, because now in, in the picture of the first son, we get a glimpse of what true repentance looks like. The sheep and the coins can't really illustrate this turning from sin. They show us the joy of God in finding a repentant sinner. Uh, I assume you know the story here. The younger son asks for his share of the property. He wants his inheritance early. And his father granted the request, and in, in verse 13 not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. 
And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. The young man illustrates the the sinners that Jesus received and ate with. Sin seems like a good idea, even as a, a like a source of pleasure and joy to a sinner. You know, if you tell a sinner to be saved that he, and to have eternal life, he must repent and he or she will think with great sorrow about all the things that they will need to give up. You know, if they remember the rich young ruler, when he was told what he must do to have eternal life, he departed sad. But when God begins to work on a sinner's heart, they begin to see with new eyes. And the young son realized that he was starving, that even the servants fared better in his father's house. In verse 17, it says that he came to himself. His eyes were opened. He recognized his sin. He says, I am not worthy to be called your son. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And now he, now that he sees in this way, he gets up and he returns to his father. He confessed his sins. And so it is with a sinner who repents. They once loved their sin. Sin was their joy. Sin was their pleasure. But one day they come to themselves. Their eyes are opened. And they say to themselves, what am I doing here? I could be serving God. And there's an owning of sin that takes place in repentance. The sinner realizes that he or she has sinned, that they have sinned against God. That their sin is worthy of death and that they are not worthy of God. This happened through John's preaching, as he preached this message of repent, the people were convicted of their sins. That is, they were convinced of their sins. They came now and they confessed their sins. They recognized their sins. They acknowledged their sins. To confess means to admit that one has committed a crime or done something wrong. The Greek word to confess comes from two root words in Hebrew to or in Greek to say and the other, the other word means the same. And so it's literally to, to say the same thing. To confess your sins means to say the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin. And what does God say about sin? God says it's an abomination. He says sin is unclean. He says it is wrong. God says sin is worthy of punishment. It brings death. Sins bring death, sin, sin brings death to relationships. It brings death to joy. Sin brings death to peace, death to comfort. Sin brings death to righteousness, goodness, and truth. It brings death to your relationships. It brings death to your circumstances. And sin results in spiritual and physical death. And this kind of confession that comes about when somebody is convicted of their sins, it's, it's not confession in a general sense. This kind of confession is not a, a vague general admission, admission that everyone has sinned, therefore I too must have sinned. 
No repentance sees specific instances of particular sins and confesses those sins and turns from those sins. Saving repentance goes even deeper still and recognizes that the reason we sin is that we are sinners. Sin is not just something merely external to us. It's not as though sin is something that we have done, although it is something that we have done. Sin is who we are before we are saved. We are by nature's sinners. And so true repentance sees the fruit, the actual sins, and true repentance sees the root, the nature corrupted by sin. And I confess my sins, and I confess that I am a sinner. And that's why Job and Isaiah and Peter each responded like they did. Job said, I despise myself. Isaiah said, woe is me. And Peter says, I am a sinful man. And so we turn from ourselves and we turn from our particular sins when we repent. Now any teaching on repentance needs to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And so I'd invite you to turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 to 13 really speak about this kind of godly sorrow that Paul talks about. Paul had had written a letter to the Corinthians, uh, a hard letter, a letter that we no longer have. Uh, It was lost in history, but, but the letter made the Corinthians sorrowful. Paul wrote this hard letter to them, and it made them sorrowful. It grieved them, but it grieved them in a good way, and the grief only lasted a while. They grieved over their sin, and it led to genuine repentance. Second Corinthians again, seven, nine, as it is, Paul says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. They were grieved into repenting. And then Paul contrasts the difference between true and false repentance. Did you know that there was such a thing as false repentance? Paul calls it here worldly grief or worldly sorrow. Both true and false repentance have grief. Both look the same on the outside. The difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow that leads to repentance is largely the motives behind the grief. You see, worldly sorrow is more concerned with the consequences than with the sin itself. Worldly sorrow grieves when the sin is discovered. Worldly sorrow sorrows because of the shame of sin or because of the penalty of sin. Like when a thief grieves that he must make restitution. Or a criminal grieves the jail sentence that he has received. Or the adulterer grieves the the cost to his family. In worldly sorrow, there is no fundamental change of heart towards the sin. The sin itself is not grieved. Only the consequences of the sin, the penalty for the sin, is grieved. Listen to the Puritan Thomas Watson on this. He says, Godly sorrow is chiefly for the trespass against God, so that even if there was no conscience to smite, no devil to accuse, no hell to punish, yet the soul would still be grieved because of prejudice done to God. Godly sorrow shows itself to be ingenuous, that is, to be true. Because when a Christian knows that he is out of gunshot of hell and shall never be damned, yet still he grieves for sinning against that free grace 
which has pardoned him. End quote. Let me read the passage to you. And as you look at this passage, I want you to ask yourself, do I have true repentance in my life? Do I have true repentance in my life? Look at verse 10. For godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you proved yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Genuine repentance sees the sin, confesses the sin, grieves over the sin, and even begins to hate the sin. Sin that was once loved becomes abhorrent when one truly repents. And there's a new eagerness, a new longing, a new zeal to put that sin away. There's an indignation, a a hatred towards that sin. When a sinner truly sees sin for what it is, no measure will be too drastic. No step will be too difficult. No action will be too troublesome in the forsaking of that thing. Imagine if you picked up some treasure and suddenly that treasure became a snake in your hand or if, or some other detestable object in your sight. You would cast that thing away as quickly as you could and as diligently as you could. You would rid yourself of that thing. That's a picture of true repentance. In repentance, we see sin for what it really is as a a horrible and detestable thing that we must get rid of, that we now loathe and hate even though we once loved that thing. And that ties into the next aspect of repentance. Because repentance isn't only a new vision of our sin, it's also a new vision of God as well. And so number three, if you're taking notes, number three in your outline, repentance is a spiritual vision of God. You know, there's a a law that governs our human nature and it controls our action. Here it is. It's that we always do what we most want to do. What we desire most. Even when we do something that we don't want to do, we do it because something more important motivates us to choose it. Like, Like if you get up early to go to work, maybe you don't like getting up early but, but you get up early regardless because you'd rather keep your job or because you'd rather not hear your boss's lecture. We always choose according to our desires. We always choose what we most want to do. And our desires are tied to our nature, who we are. And so we want according to our nature. And what we want, we choose. And this law is important when we think about repentance. Because if we're going to leave sin... Something else, something greater must motivate us to leave it. When we turn from sin, we necessarily need to turn to something else. And what is that something else? Unbelievers are able to put off certain sins by replacing them with other sins. A drunkard may stop drinking out of a stronger desire to get ahead in the world. One sin replaces another But to really put off sin, what is needed is a new and stronger desire for something that is not sin. I I love this little biblical counseling jingle. It goes like this. There are two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. And there really are only two choices. Two choices on the shelf. There are only two choices, pleasing God 
or pleasing self. And so what's really going to drive sin away in our life is a spiritual vision of God that makes us want to live for Him. Pleasing God, living in a way that honors Him, fearing God, worshiping God, glorifying God, loving God. These are all ways to talk about a vision of God that moves us to turn from our sin. And that's exactly what happened to the Thessalonians. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. Paul says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. You know, Paul didn't have to tell people about about how the Thessalonians responded to the gospel because the word of the Thessalonians' response to the gospel traveled all throughout Asia Minor and people were coming to Paul and telling him about how the Thessalonians responded to his preaching. And so he didn't have to say anything about the reception that he had. And look at that. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Sin is idolatry. Sin is worshiping, fearing, serving anything but the one true God. And repentance is turning from that idolatry to serve, worship, treasure, value, honor, and fear God. Paul talks about this spiritual vision in a, a favorite passage of mine in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Turn with me there for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul talks about this spiritual vision that he had that, that caused him to turn from sin and self to live for God. And in verses 3 to 6 of 2 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about salvations in terms of God turning on the light in one's life. Before salvation, we were blinded, darkened. The veil of Satan prevented us from seeing. We could also think of it as the veil of sin blinding our eyes. The perishing are blinded, Paul says. They are blinded to the glory of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. He says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, In their case, the God of this world, the small g there, the God of this world, Satan, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so unbelievers, the perishing, they're blinded to the glory of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. The the blinders are on and they cannot see how glorious and great Jesus Christ is. But then in verse 5, Paul switches to talk about himself. He is no longer blind. He is no longer among the perishing. He can now see because God turned on the light in his heart. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now he sees the glory of God and he sees the glory, he sees that glory, he sees the glory of God in Christ who is the image of God. And he no longer lives for himself, he lives for Jesus' sake. And he serves others 
for Jesus' sake. He is a preacher because God has opened His eyes. He has turned from sin and self to live for a greater treasure, the glorious God of the universe. He turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. And we see this same sort of thing in Acts chapter 26. And and you could turn there if you wanted as well. Paul in Acts 26 is recounting his conversion. How God had saved him and met him on the Damascus road and, and really blinded his eyes with a glorious light, the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus appeared to Paul, he told him that he was sending him, he was going to send him to the Gentiles. Listen to this, Acts 26, 18. I am sending you to the Gentiles, quote, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Note that turning language again. This is the language of repentance. And this is the kind of turning involved in true repentance. It's a turning from darkness to light. It's turning from the power of Satan to God. And this turn is the result of opened eyes, of of a spiritual vision. And the two sides of this spiritual vision work together. As our eyes open to behold the glory of God and Christ, sin becomes increasingly repugnant to us. Before the holy God, sin becomes increasingly sinful. And from the other way, the more we see the sinfulness of sin, the more we see the emptiness of the world, the futility of idols, the more we will look to God for our satisfaction and joy and fulfillment. And so let me ask you directly, have you repented? Have you seen sin in your life in such a way that you can say with the tax collector in Luke 18, have mercy on me, O God, the sinner? Have you seen that you stand guilty before God without any excuse for your sin? Have you seen that God is so righteous and holy and true and loving and gracious and magnificent that He alone is worthy of your love and affection of your life and your all? Oh friends, if you are not, you are blinded to the truth and I invite you to turn this moment to Jesus Christ for mercy. He will forgive your sin and welcome you to God. God Himself will rejoice and celebrate your repentance. And if you can honestly examine your life and say, yes, I have repented. No, not I am perfect, but that yes, at the deepest level of who I am, you see that you have turned from sin to God. Then I want you to know this next aspect of repentance. And that's number four in our outline. That repentance is a saving gift of God. If you have truly repented, it wasn't because you were wiser than other sinners. It wasn't because you were less darkened in your understanding. It wasn't because of anything attributable to you. It was because of God's grace. It was because God opened your eyes. It was because He loved you and He extended a saving gift of His grace to you. He loved you even though you were dead in your trespasses and sins and God granted you repentance. He gave it to you as a free gift of His grace. Now let me prove that to you from a number of Scriptures. First go to Acts chapter 5. We're we're already in the book of Acts. Just flip back a few chapters. Acts chapter 5 and verse 30. Peter here is speaking to the chief priest. 
Verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. God has raised Jesus and exalted him to give repentance. Jesus gives repentance. Again, in Acts chapter 11, we see very similar language. Here, Peter is recounting the salvation of Cornelius and his household. Remember, they were Gentiles. And if you remember the story, remember an angel told Cornelius to go and get Peter and to bring Peter because Peter would tell him, the angel said in verse 14, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And Peter's recounting this, verse 15, he says, as I began to speak, Peter begins to preach the gospel to Cornelius and his household. As I began to speak, Peter says, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And so Peter was preaching and the Holy Spirit fell on them and they were saved. And look at what amazed the disciples, or sorry, what the amazed disciples conclude in verse 18. When they heard these things, as Peter relays this story of the conversion of Cornelius and his household, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance to life. And in case anyone would object saying the disciples mistakenly thought that God had granted this repentance, note the saying of theirs glorified God. And so acknowledging that, that God is the one who grants repentance, that glorifies God. Repentance is a saving gift of God. I want you to turn to one more passage. This one is in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second <clears throat> Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. Paul here is giving instructions to the Lord's bondservant, Timothy. How should Timothy respond? How should Timothy interact with people who resist his preaching and his teaching? Paul tells him there, verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Excuse me. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. When dealing with resistant people, the servant of God should know that arguing isn't the answer. Quarreling won't help. What we should do is gently teach and look to God who alone can grant repentance, who alone can give repentance and deliver such a one from Satan's snare. Now I promised I would come back to this question of repentance and faith. And what we should really see by now is that repentance and faith are joined together. We can distinguish them, but never separate them. A true believer will turn from sin, and whoever repents must necessarily believe. To repent is to believe. 
There's no difference between Paul's believe and the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's Acts 16.31. And Jesus' message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe each focus on a different aspect of the one response to the gospel. And in our day when it's easy to say, I believe, it might be better to actually call people to repent. The language of repentance reminds us that true saving faith not only acknowledges and believes the facts of the gospel, but true saving faith actually comes to and trusts in the person of Christ. Simply professing Christ is not enough. The devil believes in Christ. One must believe in such a way that they flee from sin, that they forsake every other trust and come to Jesus Christ. Repentance emphasizes this aspect of genuine saving faith. Now some people say that if we preach repentance, we are adding works to the gospel. Some say all you need to do is believe repentance isn't necessary. That's adding to the gospel. Well, what do we say to that? First of all, John's message could be summarized by repent. Jesus' message was repent. Jesus said in Luke 24:47 that repentance should be proclaimed in his name for the forgiveness of sins. Nothing about faith is mentioned in that context. Peter preached Acts 2:38. He says, "Repent and be baptized." Paul preached repentance, Acts 17:30, "God commands all people everywhere to repent." And so if we would preach like Jesus and the apostles, we will preach repentance. Secondly, what we would say to somebody who says, why are you adding repentance to the gospel? We would say that adding, we're not adding works to the gospel. Both repentance and faith are fruit. Specifically, they are the fruit of being born again. When God saves a sinner, He changes our hearts. He makes us new creatures. He removes a heart of stone and He gives us a heart of flesh. He puts the Holy Spirit in us. In short, when God saves a sinner, He gives us a new nature. And when we are regenerated, when we have this new nature, we will turn away from sin to God and we will trust in Christ. We will hate the sin that we once loved and we will love the God that we once hated and we will love His ways and to walk after His ways. And so repentance is how we respond to the gospel and at the same time it is the result of God's gracious work in our lives. Finally, and and number five, repentance is a steady work of believers. Notice here I say that this is of believers. I'm talking to those who have already repented and believed. Repentance is not a a, a one-moment event that we can ignore from then on. There might be a moment of repentance when we are born again and saved, but that repentance continues throughout our earthly life. And so we've seen so far that repentance is a summary of the gospel. Repentance is a spiritual vision of sin. Repentance is a spiritual vision of God. Repentance is a saving gift of God. And now number five, repentance is a steady work of believers. Our repentance will never be perfect in this life. The remnants of our flesh, our old life, will continually plague us until that day when we see Jesus Christ. And when we see Him, we will be made like Him. Until then, we must constantly battle our remaining indwelling sin. 
Until then, we continue to repent. And as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, we will see more clearly and ever more clearly the sin that clings to us. And when we see that sin as we grow in Christ, what should we do? First, remember that our standing with God isn't dependent on our day-to-day performance. Our standing with God is sure because Christ's righteousness is ours. It's been imputed to us when we have been justified or when we are justified by faith. And second, when we are confronted with that remaining sin, not only do we remember that our relationship with God is still secure because of the righteousness of Christ, we also, when we see the sin in our lives, we should acknowledge it. We should confess it. We should turn from it, renounce it, flee it, fight it. We should repent and ask God to deliver us from that thing, deliver us from sin, and to change us more into Christ's likeness. And so repentance is our steady work in this life. You know, in our community, many fear the the doctrine of assurance of salvation. They think that it will promote sin. If we teach that, that you could be sure of your salvation, it will promote sin. Our answer to that is no, it won't. The doctrine of repentance and the doctrine of assurance of salvation go together. And one of the best ways you can know that you are actually saved is when you see a continual pattern of repentance in your life. And so, brothers and sisters, repentance is the way that God saves us and delivers us from judgment. And friends out there, if you are not saved, I would just urge you to turn from your sin to Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy of your life. The things in this world and the things of sin and Satan are not worthy to be lived for, but Jesus Christ is worthy. And so turn from your sin to Him. That is the only way that you can escape God's judgment. And for those of us who have repented, continue in your repentance and rejoice in the the marvelous, amazing gift that God has given us, that He has allowed us to see who He is so that we could turn from our sin to this excellent and glorious and majestic God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the doctrine of repentance, that You have given us hope in the Gospel by allowing us to turn from sin and to turn to You for forgiveness of that sin. We thank You for that forgiveness. And we even now ask that you would cleanse us of those things that we've been convicted of in this message. Cause people to turn from sin to you, we pray. And help us to be made more into the image of Christ, to really repent and turn to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.